I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. It will be the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord, according to Luke. And we're in the fourth chapter and dealing with this matter of who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? So many times when you ask someone who they think Jesus is, they say he is a good teacher. That's not a new response. People have been saying that Jesus is a good teacher for a couple thousand years at least. He's a good teacher. That's a traditional response. In fact, we'll see that it's a first century response even this morning. Jesus, he's a good teacher. He's a very good teacher. The problem with that response, that mere response is, is it doesn't say enough doesn't say anything about how he fits into what God is doing in the world and, and how it brings fulfillment to what God is doing in the world and, and he's the one and on I could go. But worse than that, the problem with merely saying Jesus is a good teacher is that Jesus isn't satisfied with that answer. And we'll see that this morning. Jesus doesn't really like the answer, Jesus is a good teacher. So what we'll do this morning is seek to further answer the question, who is Jesus? And we'll learn from this historical account of Jesus interacting, but we'll most specifically hear Jesus saying some very extraordinary things about himself as it would relate to God's purposes and plans in this world as a whole. If you look with me at Luke chapter 4 verse 14 this morning we'll go from 14 to 30 and let's jump right into verse 14 where it says and jesus returned in the power of the spirit to galilee so we have a shift jesus is going to galilee we're going to talk about the power of the spirit in just a little while it's really important probably more important than we realize But for now, let's just see that things are shifting and he's going to Galilee. Chapter 1 would have us to know that's where his parents are from. Uh, If you need to picture this in your mind, remember uh, it's the Galilean region. So that's going to be toward the north, uh, up toward the north where you have Sea of Galilee in Israel, up toward the north where you have Lebanon, down to the south, down by Egypt, uh, closer down to Egypt, you have Jerusalem and the region of Judea. No, they're in the Galilean region up to the north, up by the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus' parents are from. And then it says in verse 14, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And so he's the talk of the towns, if you will. The region is buzzing about who Jesus is. He's enjoying some some popularity in the First century Palestinian pop culture, uh, he would be the one that they would want to interview on the talk shows uh, because he's really something. Words really getting out about him. And then it says in verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. It'll come up again, but that's where I got this notion of he's a good teacher. He is teaching, he's teaching in their synagogues, and the common sentiment regarding Jesus is. He's a good teacher. Maybe he's a great teacher. He's being glorified by all. They're saying uh, such wonderful things about who Jesus is as far as a teacher is concerned. He'll be popular because he feeds their bellies. 
He'll be popular because he makes them healthy. But right here, the emphasis is he's popular because he can communicate. And he can communicate when he opens up the law of God. He's really something special, something extraordinary. He's doing this in the synagogues. Not to get too bogged down here, but from what we know uh, about synagogues, it would have been uh, probably following the Babylonian captivity of Israel, where people were, were shut off. They were cut off from the temple. And so uh, instead of being able to go to the temple to worship God and, and where God uniquely dwells, when you're not able to get to the temple, you'd gather for worship and you'd hear the reading of Scripture. Uh, from what we do know, they would recite the Shema or the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that would be recited because at its very core, the religion is monotheistic. There's only one God, not like the gods of the nations. Not only that, you'd, you'd, uh, someone would unroll the scroll and read from Torah, read from the law, unroll a scroll, read from the prophets. Someone would teach and explain the scriptures, bring application of the scriptures. And this was a regular thing to do, to gather together. And it was regular to, to have the, um, the men speak, especially those who are capable, those who could, they would speak and explain the reading. It would be oftentimes translated from Hebrew into the language of the people that they were sp uh, speaking, their vernacular, Aramaic in this case, more than likely. And this was Jesus' custom, and he's being honored, he's being glorified, he's being exalted because he's such a good teacher, verse 15. Now we go in verse 16 from the general region of Galilee and we zero in on his hometown of Nazareth. Still in that region, zeroing in on Nazareth in verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. We can't be certain, but based upon the wording there, it's likely that a schedule was not followed, at least not a precise schedule of reading, or it would have been opened up to the right place. Instead, he's given at least the scroll of Isaiah, and he finds the place he wants to read from. It's not certain, maybe there's a schedule followed, but it seems that he's looking for the place where he wants to speak from. Then verse 17 goes on to say, he unrolled the scroll. Just for fun, read between the lines, without chapter divisions or verse divisions. Maybe not word divisions. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verse 18 says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Isaiah 61. It would have been familiar to them. They know this. This is an exciting, this is, a, this is a good news passage. This is a thrilling one for him to be reading. They're going to be excited about this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And at least for now, no. This is, this is, this is a positive. By and large, the chapter as a whole is positive. Also, I would suggest to you, uh, this is a key enough text in Isaiah the prophet that it's one they would have known, they would have been familiar with. He wouldn't have needed to read the whole thing. He could only read a sampling of it and they get it. They get it that this is a messianic prophecy, that this is, this is what we're longing for, what we're waiting for, because this promises deliverance. This promises, promises rescue. This promises redemption. This brings uh, what we're waiting for, uh, freedom from oppression. This, this brings ultimate deliverance. It's good news. It even says in verse 18, this is a gospel text. This is a good news text. This is an exciting text. We'll come back to the details of it, but just with that in mind, look what it says in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You know, if this were a movie... They would think the producers, the directors, all those involved would think long and hard about what kind of music to play here. Or what kind of music to play before and then to have absolute utter silence here. A lot of planning and organizing. Because this is a dramatic moment. This is a thrilling moment. Jesus stands up to read, as would be customary, as would show honor to the reading of sacred scripture, and and then sits down to teach. What would be said next? What would he say? He's a good teacher. He's got a reputation that's making its way throughout the land. It's probably going to be something good. He read a good text. He read a very good text. What is he going to say? So it says in verse 21. And he began to say to them, perhaps indicating he says more than this, but what we have recorded here in Luke is, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's all Luke records. Maybe there's more. Maybe he said more. Maybe that's all he said. We know what he means. It's me. I'm the one. 
How about everything promised in Isaiah 61? Everything that you've been waiting for, everything that you're so excited for, having heard this traditional text, it's, it's all about me. I'm the one. I'm it. Even the language that he chooses to, to use as far as the Greek text is here in Luke's account, it's in what's called the perfect tense. It, it, the, 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 somebody described it as the fixedness of the fulfillment. I mean, th- this isn't just about what might happen because of what I'm going to do. This, this is reality right before your very eyes. Not that there isn't more that's going to happen, but it's as good as done. I'm the key. I'm the one to bring the promises of God to reality. So that's, that's meant to be like, you know, shocker, profound. But I think it gets even more profound when we go back to that statement that he makes. In verse 18, I, I mentioned that we would come back to it. I'd like to come back to it now and look at the details a little bit closer. It becomes a little bit more significant. In verse 18 where it said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is more significant for me, maybe just because of my biblical illiteracy. Um, I didn't, I I didn't, I wasn't afforded the privilege of scripture memory growing up and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure what I learned growing up. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. That becomes very significant to Isaiah 61. It becomes significant in Isaiah, the spirit of God, the spirit of the Lord. It becomes significant then when we think about the Spirit of the Lord in relationship to Jesus. It becomes significant when you think about the Spirit of God in Scripture. See, in Isaiah, you've got the Spirit bringing new life, recreated life, new creation kind of life, redemptive new creation kind of life in Isaiah. Sounding, hearkening back to the script, uh, the the earliest chapters of the Bible, where you end up having the Spirit of God hovering, the Spirit of God at creation, and some of that imagery is picked up in Isaiah's writings. And you've got the Spirit of God bringing restoration, Spirit of God bringing new creation. And then we're really onto something because time and time and time and time again in Luke's gospel account, we've been hearing about the Spirit of God being upon Jesus. And so what you end up seeing is you, you've got the Son, the servant, intimately connected and partnering with the Spirit for new creation, for redemption, for restoration. Remember when Jesus is conceived, you've got the Spirit. Um, uh, the, the Spirit is there. And you should call Him the Son of God, Luke one thirty-five. Not only that, you have the wilderness temptation of Jesus. He's led by the Spirit, Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we saw not too long ago. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, I think it is. You've got the Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus. And it's Spirit, 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 Spirit. Well, that's been getting us ready, if you will, for this climactic punchline and Jesus is the Isaiah 61 one he's he's it the spirit of God is upon me 
Well, well, that's Isaiah 61. He's the one. He's the new, the new creator, if you will. With the Spirit, partnering with the Spirit. This is new covenant talk. And we'll say more about that when we get to Isaiah 61 and looking at it toward the end of our study together this morning. Not only that, what's interesting is then you get to the book of Acts. Just to look ahead, that's like Luke volume 2. Because Luke writes Luke and Acts. So a lot of times people refer to it as, as Luke Acts. And you've got the Spirit of God working in the church. This new creation called the church. And where does it come from? It comes from the, from the Spirit. So you've got that continuity, the spirit in creation. You've got spirit promised in new creation, spirit tied to Jesus. Jesus is led by the spirit. And so he's the one, he's the right one to bring fulfillment and to bring restoration. And not only that, you have the church that comes along. And it also, just like Jesus, is tied to the spirit in its new creative kind of work. It's It's exciting. He's the one. He's not just a good teacher. He's the culminating centerpiece, high point of of everything. And the Spirit of the Lord being upon him proves that. Those connections should be unmistakable. But oftentimes we, we, we forget about them. I don't know about you, but so many times I just see Spirit of God is upon him. And, you know, I think, well, that, that obviously the Trinity works together. And obviously his humanity shows he needs the Spirit, you know, or whatever I've been thinking. I'm not saying those things aren't true. But we also need to realize that the drama is unfolding. New creation. As promised. He's the one. If you're looking for a good exercise today and, and, and some just time reading scripture today, go back and read where we've gone so far. But start perhaps in chapter 4, verse 18, where the Spirit of God is upon him and sort of read your way backward and you say, Spirit, 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 Spirit of God is upon him. And then you start reading in Isaiah 61 and not just Isaiah 61, but in that general region and this, this emphasis on the Spirit. New covenant, new creation, as anticipated. And then read the opening chapters of the book of Acts. And now we should take a little bit closer look to to that passage that's quoted. Continuing on from verse 18, it says, Because he is anointed... Uh, that's a Messiah word. It's, it's the word for Messiah. He's anointed as you would acknowledge a king. You would publicly and officially affirm a king as he has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, to preach liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's describing Jesus' ministry. That's the kind of ministry he's going to have. What's so interesting is you do see, when you think about Jesus' ministry, by and large, not just what you see him doing on earth, but what you see him do uh, holistically, you see that Jesus is the one who brings redemption and restoration spiritually. And Jesus is the one who brings redemption and restoration physically. 
And I realize sometimes that makes some of us nervous. And when you read commentaries, oftentimes they go out of their way to the nth degree to prove how none of this has anything to do with anything physical. Don't go there. Oh yes, you'd better make sure that this has to do with spiritual restoration. But Jesus is the one who saves and restores and brings new life. And when it's all said and done, absolute spiritual restoration. And when it's all said and done, absolute physical restoration. When it's all said and done. That's why in Jesus' ministry, there's definitely the emphasis on the spiritual. But there's at least a preview, if you will, on the physical. One day you will see Jesus and you'll be made like him. One day you will have a glorified body. And the older this body is and the more it hurts, the more you'll want a holistic Savior. God is an anti-matter. God, God likes matter. He made it. Okay? Um, Christianity isn't a Gnostic religion where we think spirit is good, physical is bad. Sometimes we end up sounding like that because we're so terrified of the abuses of charismania. But you've got to know, Isaiah 53 says that by his stripes you are healed. Now that's been abused ad finitum ad nauseum. But the reality is it's as good as done. You have a new body. Just like Romans 8 says, you have been glorified. But you haven't been. You have been healed if you're a believer, but you, you haven't been. It's as good as done. It's as good as done. He's the Savior with a capital S in every way necessary. How about this? In every way, in every way that the, 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 the curse and its effects have brought suffering into this world and separation from God in every way necessary, that'll be reversed and restoration will come. I like what Craig Beale said in his book on biblical theology. It's a, a little bit um, wordy, but I like what he said about this. Looking at how the Old and New Testament fit together. The healings were signs of the inbreaking new creation. It's a foretaste. Which were not the complete healing of people's bodies since they would still die due to the effects of the fall. Nevertheless, these wonders foreshadowed Jesus' own complete healing in resurrection and the time when his followers will be completely healed. These miracles are a sign that the painful consequences of the first Adam's sin upon creation are being removed to make way for a new creation which is climaxed by the healing of Jesus himself at his own resurrection. This resurrection, Paul says, was the first fruits of the rest of redeemed humanity who would be raised because of Christ was first raised. 1 Corinthians 15. 
And Christ is raised as the progenitor, the first one in the origin of the new creation, 1 Corinthians 15. So when Jesus says, I'm the one to bring healing, I'm the one to bring freedom of captivity, I'm the one to bring restoration. He certainly means it in its whole sense. That's exciting. Verse 19 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim what's called the year of jubilee. To proclaim the the year of rest. But here, in the light of Isaiah 61, it's a year of rest that never ends. Just as the people would wait for that historic time that would come every so often, they would be excited because debts would be forgiven. They would be excited because there's freedom, there's release. Jesus is saying, the rest is in me. The ultimate year of jubilee. The ultimate year of the Lord's favor. The ultimate time of grace is in me. The other was a foreshadowing. The other was a foretaste. Verse 22 says, let's keep moving now where it says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is a really good teacher. He's an amazing teacher. His words are gracious. He's a good speaker. So far, so good. And yet, then verse 22 goes on to say, look there. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Isn't isn't he a common man's son? And they will say worse than that. But for, for here, it's just, it, it, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus tells them what they're thinking in verse 23. <laughs> Revealing he's more than Joseph's son, by the way. Verse 23, and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. I know what you're going to say. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. I I know where you're going to go. You're going to say, do a miracle. Prove what you're saying here. Do, do, Do something. Do some magic. As would be a common proverb, physician, heal yourself. Prove that you know what you're talking about when it comes to medicine. Why do you have a cough? Why do you look like just the rest of us? Prove it. Verse 24 says, and he said truly or or solemnly would be the idea here. Soberly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Problem isn't with me. Problem is with you. And things really escalate in verse 25 where he gives him a warning with a historical analogy. Verse 25 says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and 
A great famine came over all the land. Verse 26. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Just put your finger there just for a second. Didn't help the Jews, helped a Gentile. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Not the Jews, but a Gentile. He's expecting his Jewish audience to have gone through cubbies, And whatever else is necessary to learn basic Bible knowledge. And he reminds them of a couple of dark points in Israel's history. Rank unbelief. Rejection of God. Of the true God. His true prophets. And it didn't go well. How dare you reject me? The problem isn't with me. The problem is with you. I'm the one. But there's historic precedent for the professing people of God to not hear the voice of God. And this is a case in point. You're not in good company. Verse 28 says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And verse 29 says, And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus is a good teacher. Well, it doesn't look like they think that anymore. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is a good teacher. Oh, he's everything. He's, it's exciting to be connected to Jesus. He's speaking in our synagogue next week. Jesus is a good teacher. But what happens when people keep listening, people who say he's a good teacher, and they keep listening, they either eventually agree that he's actually the Son of God, And the fulfillment of God's promises or people who say Jesus is a good teacher hear enough when they keep listening to say we'll kill him. We'll kill him. And that's what they do. He's not such a good teacher after all. The good teacher claims to be the fulfillment of the promises of God. They can't kill him. No one can kill him. No one can kill him because he himself is going to lay down his own life for sinners like the sinners who wanted to kill him. Amazingly so. 
If you would, if you turn to Isaiah 61, the actual text. We're going to transition a bit, but still thinking about these things and Jesus laying down his life and the significance of, of him saying that these things are being fulfilled. These things are fulfilled. And it's a, a very fitting and providential transition for us as we would want to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning and all that Jesus has claimed to be. In Isaiah 61, and I'm, I'm assuming here, which is dangerous, um, I think it's a pretty good assumption that when Jesus references the opening verses of Isaiah 61, it's well known enough to anticipate or expect the rest of it to be known. Just a couple of other fascinating texts in Isaiah 61 regarding who Jesus is. Let's, let's get a little bit fuller picture of who he is. I love Isaiah 61 verse 8 where it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. Here's really what I wanted you to notice. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's New Covenant speech. That's New Covenant talk. That's the way the New Covenant is spoken of. It's an everlasting covenant. It's a contract. It's irrevocable. It's, it's eternal. It's a promise from God that cannot be broken. And Jesus, the one who brings fulfillment to the promises of God. And here we have an everlasting covenant made with the people of God. And in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, is a covenant that Jesus makes in his what? It's a covenant that he makes in his blood. Which isn't emphasized in chapter 61, but it is emphasized in Isaiah and the latter chapters. That atonement has to be made. We can't have this new covenant that brings restoration uh, accompanied by the, the, the regenerative work of the Spirit, the recreative work of the Spirit apart from this new covenant reality. And this new covenant reality is bound up in the work of Christ. Specifically, it's a new covenant in His blood. And so we're crossing T's and dotting I's, but I think wonderfully so. First Corinthians eleven twenty five says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is tied to Jesus' recreative work, the Spirit of God's recreative work, Isaiah sixty one. Hebrews chapter nine verse fifteen says that, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the one, this one we've been waiting for. It's him. It's altogether him. It's absolutely him. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the, the, the year of jubilee rest. Jesus is the giver of new life. Jesus is the liberator. Jesus is the promised one. And then one other verse in Isaiah 61. The whole thing is fascinating. But another one is verse 10 as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper and we think about Christ and his work on our behalf and his atoning work and his righteous work. Verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he 
This is God, the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Notice this is a gracious work. This is what he has done, not what we do. This is a new covenant reality. He has covered me. He has clothed me. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So the righteousness comes from him. It's not ours. Our righteous standing before God is not our own doing. It's something he has done. And then it says, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's a great picture of what the Lord is going to do for him. And Jesus is time and time again pointing to himself. In your hearing today, fulfillment has happened. Oh, a lot more has got to go on. He's got to do a lot more. But it's as good as done because he's come to earth and the Spirit of God is upon him. And if the Spirit of God is upon him, the Spirit of God is not going to be off of him. It's as good as done. I'm the one. I'm the one that brings atonement. I'm the one who's the gift from God who gives you the righteousness, the the, the law-keeping position that you need because you're not a law-keeper. All of these things wrapped up in this new covenant, this new reality of grace from God is thrilling and exciting. It should cause us, when we hear the question, who is Jesus? Maybe at first to be speechless. Where do I start? He's my all in all. He's my everything. He's my Savior. He's my righteousness. He's my mediator. He's my redeemer. He's my Lord. He's my everything. He's my rest. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you this morning for a good reminder about who Jesus is. That He is the fulfillment of Your good and fitting and gracious new covenant promises. And we rejoice today that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. This, this new agreement, this better agreement between You and us that's based upon Your work and not ours. We are so grateful that by Your grace we can understand that it's not by our law-keeping that we can somehow earn your favor. According to your grace, according to your loving kindness, we can know here today that it's by the perfect work of Jesus. These things are fulfilled. These things are sure. These things are, are secured for us. Thank you for giving us such a good mediator, one who cares for us, one who has loved us and will love us to the very end. Thank you that you've secured perfect restoration in Christ. Not only spiritually, though that is so important, but also even for us physically. That you will, you will fix this world. That this world will be all that you would want it to be. And thank you that in Jesus Christ we don't have to fear your wrath. And we don't have to fear your judgment. But we can find ourselves with a sure hope of resurrection in Him. 
in Jesus' name, amen.